If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. Genesis, chapter 12. Before I get into our message today, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life. And if this is your first time here, I am thrilled you're with us. At the end of the service, I'll be downstairs. Our pastors and staff will be downstairs. And we would love to meet you before you head out. So please make your way to us before you head out. Now, a couple of things. Uh, Downstairs in the book table area, we have some resources available for you because the season of Advent is starting in a couple of weeks, and Advent really kicks off the church calendar. The church calendar begins with the birth of Jesus Christ, and really, that begins our own spiritual journey as we think about what it means to follow Christ. For us, our world does not begin on January 1st. We begin on Advent as we wait for God. And we want to mark Advent, which is the four weeks before we celebrate Christmas, by waiting, by praying, by making space for Jesus in our lives. And so to that end, we have some resources available for you downstairs, uh, whether it's for children, uh, we have Advent calendar, uh, some devotional, something that I created last uh, year, uh, daily offices, just 50 prayers, morning and evening prayers to keep you focused on Jesus as we wait for and anticipate Christmas. So downstairs, feel free to grab that, and we're gonna be ordering some more uh, stuff next week. If you run out of it, uh, if you already run out of it, we'll have some more stuff next Sunday. So just be mindful of that. Now, uh, last week, uh, I thought we would close our series on how we got here, origin stories of broken in and redemption, by ending with the Tower of Babel. But after, after giving it some thought, I wanted to end this series with a focus on Genesis 12, because Genesis 12 offers what is a kind of a a new hope, a new beginning, a a new story that God creates in the person of Abraham. And so this is uh, officially the last sermon in that series, and we're ending in, not in Genesis 11, we're ending in Genesis 12. And really this message is a message of trust. What does it mean to trust God in the respective seasons we find ourselves in. What does it mean to trust God with your life, with your career, with your relationships, with your finances? What does it mean to live a life of trust and faith? And what we see in Genesis 12 is that it is a a contrast to what we see in Genesis 1 through 11. And so we want to listen to God's word for our own lives today. Follow with me, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. We'll have it on the screen as well. But hear the word of the Lord. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from this country, from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Lord, open our eyes to your word, open our ears to your word, open our hearts to receive every gift of the Spirit this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. One of the great theologians of the church, a man by the name of Eugene Peterson, who died last year, said that there are two biblical designations to describe people of faith. That people who seek to follow God in this world, people who seek to follow Jesus, they're really two words from the Bible that describe the kind of life that we're trying to live. The first word he says is that we are all called to be disciples, to be disciples. And by disciples, he meant that we are to be apprenticed to our teacher, apprenticed to our master, apprenticed to our Lord Jesus Christ. That our lives are to be in an ongoing relationship of learning, an ongoing relationship of growth, an ongoing relationship of obedience, an ongoing relationship of trust. Disciple. But there's another word that he wrote about that I think is very important that the other word is not just that we are disciples, that we are also called to be a pilgrim. And to be a pilgrim means that we spend our lives going somewhere, that our lives are consistently on a journey. Our lives are consistently going from one place to the next, and we are invited to trust God wherever we're at. 
And as I thought about that second word, pilgrim, in particular, I thought about New York City. Not because we have a lot of pilgrims in New York City, but we get a lot of tourists in New York City. And tourists are the opposite of pilgrims. We get 60 million tourists a year. And you can easily spot a tourist when you go into the streets of Manhattan. They usually have an I Love New York t-shirt on. I don't own an I Love New York t-shirt, and I've been here for 40 years. I love New York, but I don't have a t-shirt. They usually have binoculars or a camera and a fanny pack, and, and they're always looking up. Their, their heads are craned, as, craned up, looking up into the sky, causing a lot of traffic in the neighborhood. They're usually asking a lot of questions. Now, I'm not against tourists. I, I love tourists. I enjoy being a tourist myself. I remember going to London and, and wanting to see Buckingham Palace, and... And my name wasn't on the Queen's list, and so I made a phone call to find out what was, uh, what was going on. Why is my name not on the guest list? And so uh, I love being a tourist. But tourists, spiritually speaking, tourism, spiritually speaking, is not a good thing because here's the contrast. A pilgrim is led by God into the unknown and is invited to trust. A tourist just wants to sightsee on his or her own terms. And that's the fundamental difference of the spiritual life. A pilgrim is led by God into the unknown and is invited to trust. A tourist just wants to sightsee on his or her own terms. The question is today, are you a pilgrim? Are you a tourist? Are you led by God into the unknown, or do you know exactly what you want to do, where you want to go, and you are in charge of your life? To be a tourist means you're in control. You have a timetable. You're in control from A to Z. To be a pilgrim means you're not in control. To be a tourist means you know where you want to go. To be a pilgrim means you don't always know where you are going. And when we look at the life of Abraham, we see that he is more than a tourist. He's a pilgrim. He's on the journey and he's invited to trust God. And Abraham really is a picture of the kind of spiritual life that God calls us into. Now, you can't understand Genesis 12, again, without looking at Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 and 2 begin with God's creation. It begins with God entering into fellowship with humanity. But soon after God creates humanity, humanity decides to go its own way. And so we saw it in Adam and Eve. Instead of receiving what God gave them, they grasped to be like God. And sin enters into the world. And soon after sin enters into the world, it spreads. It spreads outside of the garden. And so we see Cain and Abel. Cain killing his brother because of jealousy. The story continues. There's wickedness. There's rebellion. There's sin. And, and, and God comes to Noah because God doesn't think he can uh, continue with these people. There's a flood that comes on the scene. And Noah and his family are the only ones spared. But even after Noah is spared, humanity continues to grow. And humanity now goes to building a tower, as we saw last week. And so over and over in Genesis 1 through 11, we see humanity doing their own thing, humanity going their own way, humanity seeking to live a life apart from God. And you would think that it should end at Genesis 11, that over and over humanity continues to choose its own way. But instead of the Bible ending with Genesis 11, the Bible continues into Genesis 12 because God will start again. And I love that about God. That God has a way of starting all over again. And that's good news for us. Because our lives are often a Genesis 1 through 11 life. We do whatever we want. We, we live our own way. We do what we want. And, and God does not give up on us. God is willing to start all over with us every single day. Amen. This is why the Bible says in Lamentations 3... That his mercies are new. When? Every morning. Not once a year. Not once a decade. Not once a century. His mercies are new every single morning. God knows what you did last night. Amen. And God says, my mercies are still new for you every single morning. God can start with us over and over and over again. God starts Again, And when God starts in Genesis 12, he starts 
again setting off a project of restoration and redemption in a surprising way. He calls a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah. Now when we meet Abraham and Sarah, their life is a picture of what we've seen in Genesis 1 through 11. To capture their life in a word, the Genesis writer describes and uses the word barren. Genesis 1 through 11 is about barrenness, lifelessness, hopelessness. It ends with despair, humanity doing their own thing, barren. And Abraham and his wife Sarah are also barren. They're in their 70s and they have yet to have a child and they've given up on all kind of hope. They are barren. And that metaphor is important because it's a metaphor for hopelessness, that that, that, that there's no hope, there's no power to create a new future in our own strength. And when we look at our own lives, we often see barrenness. Some of you look at your family, you see hopelessness. Look at your marriage, lifelessness. Look at your career and your vocation, hopelessness and despair. Look at the way of our country, the way of our political system, the way of the challenges of the world, and we look out and we see barrenness. But Abraham's story is is that in the midst of barrenness, God calls him. And what I love about that is God calls him not just despite his barrenness, God calls him because of his barrenness. And that's good news for us. Because God is always looking for barren places in which he can breathe new life. God is always looking for places of hopelessness and despair so he can breathe in new life. And so, here's the good news. If you're experiencing hopelessness today, it's good news. You are a candidate for God's power and presence flowing and manifesting in your life. Because God is always looking for barren people, for hopeless people, for people who cannot do things in their own strength. God is attracted to people who are broken. Attracted to people who are hopeless. Attracted to people who can't get their act together. Attracted to people who cannot fix their own circumstances and situations. God is attracted to you. This is why the Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To people who recognize I have need. To people who recognize I can't fix this on my own. To people who recognize I'm running out of hope. God says, you are a candidate. For me to come to you and use you in great power. The world will give up on you. The world says there's no hope for you. The world says give up on it. But God looks for people who are hopeless. And he calls this man Abraham and his wife Sarah out of this place of brokenness. Hopelessness. And I love that Genesis 12 begins with these three words. The Lord said. Three powerful words. The Lord said. God knows everything about Abraham and Sarah. He knows how old they are. But the Lord said. And God speaks to their hopelessness. The Lord said. You could be sure that there are people who have said things to Abraham and Sarah. You could be sure there were words of judgment spoken over Abraham and Sarah. You could be sure that there were people who were criticizing Abraham and Sarah. In that day, not to have children was a sign of God's displeasure. You could be sure that people were saying, what have you done wrong, Abraham and Sarah? Many words were said to them, but all it takes is one saying from God, one word from God to undo everything that was said to them. The Lord said. I love that God chooses this old couple. If we were writing the story, we'd do it different. If we were writing the story, we'd choose a young couple, a couple that we knew would succeed, a couple that we knew if they're going to go on a long journey can withstand the pressures of the, the, the change of, of weather and the change of, of, of climate and all that there. But, but God's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. God calls this old couple in their 70s to go on a journey into a new land that God has for them. And it's a life now that they are called to live that's marked by trust. God said. Now, what did the Lord say? Essentially, the Lord said three things in Genesis 12. 
And every word that I mention today, I imagine will find some connection with where you're at in life. Three really invitations out of this passage. And the words are leave, receive, and believe. I used to be a rapper, so this stuff just starts coming out here, right? <laughs> leave, receive, and believe. Those are three words that are to mark our spiritual journey. Three words that are to mark our lives together. The first word is leave. The first encounter that Abraham has with God is, is very interesting. God meets him, and God doesn't introduce himself. God doesn't have a long conversation. God doesn't say anything. God says, go. Go forth from your country, your relatives, your father's house, the land that I will show you. There's no introduction. There's no coffee. There's no maps. There's no destination. God just says, go. Where are you going? Well, you'll find out when you get there. And Abraham has to leave at this moment, and he chooses to leave into a new space that God has for him. And the word leave is an important word for us. It's an important metaphor of the spiritual life because from time to time, we have to leave. Our entire lives, you could argue, is marked by leaving. From the time we are born to the time we die, we have to leave. Babies have to leave. After spending nine months in their mother's womb, experiencing warmth and comfort and the nutrients that come from that uh, connected relationship, an eviction notice is given. And the babies have to get out of that womb now and into the world that we live in. No wonder they're kicking and screaming. They have to leave. But it's not just infants in this way. We have little kids who have to leave. Kids are accustomed and three and four years old, they're, they're, they're watching PBS Kids and Daniel Tiger and, and having a good time. But then there's a day where you got to go to kindergarten. No wonder they're kicking and screaming because it's, they're moving now out of their area of familiarity, out of their area of, of security. And to leave essentially means this. It means that we have to let go of what's familiar and comfortable because it stands in the way of where God wants to take you. And so babies have to leave. Kids have to leave. Teenagers have to leave. Some of you parents are saying, amen, get them out of here. You know, they have to go to college. And they go off to college and, and, and move out of what's familiar and move out of what is secure and, and, and what is predictable. But not just teenagers, college students have to leave. They leave out of the, uh, the fake world into the real world, the real world of bills now. Yes, you got to get a job now. You have student loans now. You have to leave. And on and on and on, we leave. We leave one job to the next. We leave one job to retirement. And at some point, all of us will leave this world as we die. From birth to death, we are called to leave. And Abraham has to leave really three things. Familiarity security, and his source of identity. What does God want you to leave? What are the things that are standing in the way of where God wants to take you? What are the areas of risk that God is inviting you to take and to follow him in? After the first service, I spoke to some new lifers, and I was just asking them at the door, what is God calling you to leave? And one, and one person said, I, I know, I, I've been wrestling with it for five years, and I'm finally leaving my job to go back to school, to get educated in what it, I believe God has called me to. But I'm afraid. It's not unfamiliar. I'm not secure here. I don't know what my identity is going to be, but that person is called to leave. I spoke to another who said, I know that God's calling me to leave and to start a business, a small business, and it's unfamiliar, and it's not secure, and I don't know if, if this is going to uh, really shape my identity or not, but I know I'm called to leave. Another person said, I, I know I need to leave the way of hoarding and become a more generous person. I live my entire life in fear, and I never give anything, but I know God is calling me to leave that life of hoarding and to become a more generous person. What is God inviting you to leave? What are the things that you've gotten so familiar at 
secure with, the source of your identity, that God says, no, no, it's time for you to leave. In the case of Abraham, he had to step out in faith and leave security, leave his sense of identity, leave familiarity. And God said, in order for you to do this, you have to leave your country. Now, Abraham, for Abraham, it was a geographical leaving. For us, it's not necessarily a geographical leaving. To leave, again, is a metaphor of the spiritual life. And in Abraham's case, he had to leave. But in our case, it's not a matter of us geographically leaving. It's a matter of us leaving as it pertains to our hearts. Because you can live all over the world and go from one place to the next but never truly leave. Or you can stay in one place on this planet and always be leaving. Leaving is not a matter of geography. Leaving is a matter of the heart. And Abraham is invited to leave. God says you are to leave your country. As I thought about that, I thought, what does it mean for us to leave our country? Not necessarily geographically, but what does it mean to leave our country? What does it mean to leave the values of this country that stand opposed to the kingdom of God? What does it mean to leave? It was Dr. King who said that the things that stand in the way of the kingdom of God in the United States, and he nailed it to three things. He says it is militarism, racism, and extreme materialism. And he says to leave means that we have to say no to those things because those things stand against the ways of the kingdom of God. We have have inherited values from this country, some values that are good and some values that stand in the way of the kingdom of God. And whether those values are a kind of political idolatry, or kind of uh, sexuality, a flippancy of sexuality, whether it is the materialism or the racism or the sexism or the classism, we are invited to leave the way of our country. God says, Abraham, leave the country. And God says the same thing to us, leave the ways of our country that are inconsistent with the kingdom of God. But he continues, Abraham, leave your family. And God's word to us as well is to leave the ways of our family. Now, I got to nuance this because for some people, when they hear that, they hear that as God's affirmation for them to finally leave their husband or wife. Or I can't tell you what I've heard over the years at New Life. Some people are just waiting for a confirmation. Uh, leave your family. Amen. I've been waiting for this word. Uh, for five years, I've been waiting for this word. And so before you do that, just hold on. Just, just, just hold on. When I talk about leaving family, I'm talking about leaving the fallen ways of our family. The ways that we have been in, we've inherited certain things in our families. Things have been handed down from one generation to the next. Things that have damaged us, things that have deformed us, things that have uh, kept us from being formed in the way of Jesus. And God says, if you're going to follow me, that means you have to leave the ways of your family. Knowing that there is a future that I have for you that are beyond what your family's history has been. And that's the good news of of what God wants to do in our lives. That whatever has happened to you and your family doesn't mean that it has to go from one generation to the next. That listen, your parents might have divorced, but that doesn't mean that you have to divorce. Your parents might have been bad with managing money, but that doesn't mean that you have to be bad with managing money. Your whole family might be dysfunctional and emotionally unhealthy, but that doesn't mean that you have to be or the next generation has to be. There is a new land that God has for us, but we have to leave. Leave. We are called to leave the ways of our country, the ways of our family. There's some relationships that are so dysfunctional that God is saying, leave it. Some old patterns, old ways of thinking, God's saying, leave it. And it is only when we leave that we can position ourselves to receive. And that order is important. In the kingdom of God and the way of God, we don't receive until we leave. Now, most of us don't like it. We want to receive first, and then we want to leave. We want God to bless us first, and then we leave. But God says blessing is contingent upon you leaving first. 
Now, I know what it's like to want to receive without leaving. I know what it's like for, to ask God to bless stuff that I know God doesn't want to bless. I used to be in dating relationships as a teenager, and I, I wouldn't even be a Christian. I, and I just knew this is not God's will. I know this is not God's will. But Lord, could you bless it anyway? Can you, she's pretty. Could you bless it anyway? Could you, I know it's a mess, but bless the mess, Lord. Can you bless the mess? And God says, I refuse to bless your mess. You have to leave, and then you'll receive. Now, to, to live in this way means that our lives are oriented around God's timing, God's way, God's will, not our timing, our way, our will, which is why Genesis 12, as I mentioned last week, should be seen as a contrast to Genesis 11, that Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel in particular is about humanity trying to bless themselves in their own effort. And look, you see, look at the contrast in Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. In Genesis 11, they said to each other, in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham. In Genesis 11, it says, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. In Genesis 12, God says, I will make you. In Genesis 11, it says, come, let us build ourselves a city. In Genesis 12, God says, I will make you into a great nation. Genesis 11, it says, let's make a name for ourselves. Genesis 12 says, I will make your name great. Genesis 11 is blessing on our own terms, in our own way, in our own timing. Genesis 12 is, I'm living open-handed to the God who longs to bless. Five times in Genesis 12, God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. In other words, God is totally committed to your blessing. God is totally committed to your goodness. God is totally committed to your flourishing. God is totally committed to your well-being. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. But your receiving is contingent upon your leaving. The question is, what is God calling you to leave? To position you to receive. And so here is Abraham. He leaves God says, this is what you receive, and this is all contingent on how you believe and in whom you believe. I love that Abraham, in verse 4, hears this word, and it says these words, so Abraham went. If it was me, I'm thinking, nah, I'm okay over here. Uh, I'm 75. This doesn't look like there's a future for me. But it says, so Abraham went. He's the father of faith. And, he, and to trust God in this way is to trust in the mysterious ways of God that we cannot fully identify, fully calculate, fully anticipate. Abraham trusts. I don't know where I'm going, but I trust in the goodness of this God, in the mysterious ways of this God, trusting that, as Isaiah 55 says, his ways are not my ways, nor his thoughts my thoughts, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are the heaven, his ways higher than my ways, and his thoughts higher than my thoughts. God, Abraham trusts in the mysterious ways of God, knowing that in God's economy, what often looks bad is often the precursor of the good that God wants to do. And often that what looks good sometimes is not what God has for us. This is what Thomas Merton said. This is a paraphrase of Thomas Merton, the great uh, writer, the great monk. He says that what we think is right at this moment, right, ends up being wrong. What we think is most helpful sometimes ends up to be damaging. We think something is a blessing when it really is a setback. We think something is a disappointment and disaster when it, it's really a gift. So often what looks great or seems like a blessing is not. And what looks terrible in the long, short run is really a rich gift in the long run. Abraham has to trust in the mysterious ways of God and he has to trust God as it pertains to the outcome, the process, and the timing. Outcome, process, timing. The what the how, the when. And God is inviting you today to trust in the outcome, 
the process and his timing, to trust him for the what, the how, and the when. And to believe in this way often means going off into the unknown, but believing that God is there to catch us, that God is there to meet us, that God is there to encounter us, even in a land that's unfamiliar to us. God is waiting for us to catch us. That image of catching is an image that I've, I've had for many years as I've read something by this author named Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite authors. Henry Nouwen was a man who he wrote a book called Clowning in Rome. And what he used to do is he used to uh, visit the circus to learn lessons about the spiritual life. And one day he was observing the flying trapeze artists, the folks who fling and twirl and flip and are caught by the other person. And he was watching these flying trapeze artists as he was at the circus and he was just meditating on them. And at the end of the circus, he had a conversation with the flyer. There's the catcher and then there's the flyer. The flyer's to the right here, the woman. The catcher's the man here. And he meets this guy who's the flyer, and, and he says, I, I'm struck by your success as you attempt these dangerous feats. What's, what's the secret of your success? And the guy responded in these words, and they're important words for the spiritual life. He says, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I'm the greatest star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. And now and said, how does this all work? And he said, the secret is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I simply have to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron behind the catch bar. And now and say, what do you mean? You do nothing. He says, I do nothing. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch. And a flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. The story of the Bible reminds us that God is a great catcher. That as we stretch out our hands to God, God with split second precision knows how to catch us. Then when we make decisions that are out of our comfort zone, God knows how to catch us. When we step out into areas that are unfamiliar, God knows how to catch us. When we move out of places that are our source of security, God knows how to catch us. The flyer must fly, the catcher must catch. And we must do what we can to discern God's will and to step out in faith and to risk knowing that God is the God who is with us, that God knows how to catch us. And not only does he know how to catch us, the paradox of the Christian faith is he's waiting there to catch us, and at the same time he's holding our hands as he's walking with us. This is the paradox of Christianity, that God is closer to you than you are to yourself. He'll never leave you or forsake you, and he gently holds you by the hand. And at the same time, he's waiting to catch you. This is the paradox of Christianity. I'm reminded of this in a chapter in, in Mark 8. I'm, I'll end with this. In the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8, I was meditating on this beautiful passage. There's a story about a blind man who's been blind, it seems, for many years. He can't see his way. He doesn't know this way from there. He, he, he's blind. And, and blindness in the Gospels, you see healings of blindness come up over and over again because, because it's a spiritual metaphor that we often don't know where we're going. Why does Jesus always heal blind eyes? You ever notice Jesus never heals an appendix? <laughs> you never see Jesus healing an appendix. I'm sure some people had appendicitis, but, but, Jesus, but he's always healing blind eyes. Why? Because it's a metaphor that we often don't know where we're going. And Jesus comes to us in those moments of darkness. And so here this man is, he's blind in Mark chapter 8, doesn't know where he's going. 
And people hear that Jesus is coming, they say, heal this man, he, he, he's our friend, he's a family member, he's been blind for so long, can you touch him and heal him? And what I love about the passage is Jesus does not just heal him in the moment. In some, in some gospel stories, Jesus heals right there on the spot. But in this case, Jesus very tenderly deals with this man. And the Bible says that he grabs him by the hand. It's, just, it's such a picture of the tenderness of Jesus. He takes him by the hand, and it says that Jesus begins to walk with him out of the village, apart from everyone. And I imagine that this man does not know where he's going, but Jesus has him by the So tender this Jesus is. And I don't know if they had a conversation on the, on the journey. I don't know what was said. If I'm the blind man, I'm saying, can, I don't want to, can you do it right here? And Jesus said, no, we're going for a walk. And Jesus has him by the hand the whole time. I love that Jesus is saying, hurry up, come on, I'm up, I'm up. No, he grabs him so tenderly by the hand, and when he gets out of the village, Jesus places his hands on him, and he heals him. And it's a picture of God's commitment to us. That many of us, we, we don't know where we're going. We can't see the future. We don't know what's happening with our careers and with our marriage, and yet God invites us to trust me that I'm with you. I know you cannot see right now, but trust that I am with you. Trust that I will lead you. Trust that I will guide you. And all I'm asking you to do is to hold my hand and let me walk you to your place of healing. Journey with me to your place of restoration. God is a God who journeys with us. God is a God who journeys for us as well. I want to end by talking about Jesus. You can't understand Christianity without recognizing the pilgrimage that Jesus Christ went for us. Jesus leaves heaven, comes to earth. He walks among us, he heals the sick, he preaches the gospel. And not only does he leave heaven, he would leave to a point where he would be on a cross. And his pilgrimage did not end with him on a cross, dying for the sins of the world, dying on our behalf. As the Nicene Creed says, he would take another pilgrimage as he would descend to hell. And he would there leave captivity captive. Jesus goes from the highest of the highs to the lowest of the lows. And he burst out of the tomb in resurrection power. Why? So that he could create a path for us to get to the Father. And that's what Jesus does for us. He, he creates a path for us to get to the Father. If I recall right, John said he is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus goes on a pilgrimage on our behalf. He goes on a pilgrimage to create a way. That in our own strength we cannot get to God. In our own ability, we cannot get to God. In our own righteousness, we cannot get to God. In our own performance, we cannot get to God. But thank God that Jesus made a way. And he makes a way out of no way. And he creates a path for us. He goes on a pilgrimage on our behalf. Why? So that we can make a pilgrimage to the Father. And as we leave, we position ourselves to receive. And as we believe, God says, I am going to use you to be a blessing to the world. But it all starts, brothers and sisters, with us leaving. What is God calling you to leave? Let's pray together. God has great blessing in store for us. God says blessing is done on my terms, not your terms. It often means leaving, leaving certain relationships, leaving certain ways of thinking, leaving the need to always be in control, 
leaving the fear of change, leaving. What's God calling you to leave today? God says, as you leave, I I have so much I want you to receive. The Father looks at us right now and says, if you only knew what I have for you, if you only knew the joy and abundance and peace that I have for you, if you only knew you'd leave in a heartbeat, that God is committed to your well-being, committed to your blessing, committed to your wholeness. We are invited to do, to leave and receive today. Lord, thank you for the gift of Abraham and this scripture. The truth, Lord, that you called us out of our own hopelessness and barrenness. That, Lord, you call us to do the hard work of leaving. Holy Spirit, would you give us discernment today? Lord, would you make plain for us what it means to leave? And Lord, as we leave, would you do what you promised that we would receive? And as we trust you and step out, Lord, would you so mark our lives by blessing that we would in turn bless the world around us? We sing to you now words of worship and words of praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. Let's all stand, let's sing together. Jesus is
have our prayer team come to my left. Invite those who are going to offer the bread and the cup to come to my right. As we've done in uh, some months ago, we have something we need to set up in this room. And if you're on the lower level here, uh, you can really serve us by just grabbing a chair at the end of our service and just bring it to the side, on this side. And if you're on this side here, grab one chair. It'll really help us to set up what we need to do here. It's interesting when I look at the life of Abraham. Abraham is known as the father of faith. And yet he wavered so many times. And I find it interesting that in Genesis 12, God says, leave your family, leave your country, leave your people. And then it says these words, so Abraham left and he took Lot with him. And I always found that puzzling. Didn't he just tell you to leave your family? And he took his nephew with him. And it's, it's fascinating because his nephew would be such a source of pain in his life. And so God tells him to leave, and he leaves, but he's still holding on to some stuff. And the invitation for us and the reality of our lives is we leave, but we always want to hold on to some stuff. But you got to leave Lot home. <laughs> the invitation is to, to, to truly leave. And yet, here's the beauty of God. He takes Lot with him. Abraham does. And Lot causes so much pain in his life. And yet God is still committed to blessing Abraham. Oh, isn't that wonderful? When you look at your life, you see how inconsistent, inconsistent you are. Every single one of us in this room, you and I are so inconsistent. We pray one day, we don't pray the next. We read our Bible one day, we lose it, we can't find it, we don't pray, use our Bible for the next month. We are so inconsistent. And yet, even through our inconsistency, God is committed to blessing you. That's the beautiful grace of God. And that's the good word I want you to leave with. God is committed to your blessing. Even despite your ups and downs, your hypocrisy, your duplicity, your inconsistency, God is still committed to blessing you and blessing you. And so we have our prayer team here. Maybe you came in here and you realize I need someone to pray for me. I'm having a hard time leaving. I'm afraid. I need, I need courage. We'd love to pray for you. For whatever need you have. And maybe you're not a Christian here today. God is calling you to leave. To leave what? To leave a life that is run by you. It's not working out for you. And trust, offer your life to the God who loves you with an everlasting love. To say yes to Jesus Christ, who's calling you by name. And if you're not a Christian here, God has abundant blessing waiting for you if you would say yes to him. Our prayer team is here. We have the bread and the cup. Our sister Carol will offer the bread and the cup. And we are reminded of the pilgrimage that Jesus Christ went on for us. Dying, poured out blood, broken body resurrects in great power so that we can have a way to the Father. And so whether you come for prayer, whether you come for the bread and the cup, as the Lord leads you, please respond. But as we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. We end in this way because this is a posture of receiving. Not manipulation, not control, us receiving. So as you think about your life, decisions you have to make, Anxiety that you're carrying, the Lord says, just open your hands and just receive. And with your hands in your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And as you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, may you know that God is with you. God is committed to your well-being, committed to blessing you, so that you may be a blessing to the world around you. And so by the grace of God, I, I pray that you would learn to leave, to receive and to believe all that God has for you. And may your life be an extension of God's grace to all you encounter this week. I bless you all in the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you all.